Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Healthcare disparities exist in many different populations in our state, but how well do Connecticut health systems meet the needs of transgender and non-binary residents? Today, where we live, we talk about the findings from the first statewide assessment of the LGBTQ plus community. It surveyed more than 3,000 residents about everything from basic needs to housing to healthcare. Coming up, we hear from two gender programs, one at Middlesex Health, the other at Yale New Haven Children's Hospital. And we hear from a longtime advocate about the need for more pediatric health care programs for youth who identify as transgender and non-binary. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on Zoom is Diana Lombardi, Executive Director of Connecticut Trans Advocacy Coalition. Diana, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me on. Now, I mentioned this Connecticut Trans Advocacy Coalition, and it's part of the LGBTQ plus Health and Human Services Network created by the legislature through the State Commission on Women, Children, Seniors, Equity and Opportunity. So, Diana, tell us more about the network and how this survey was one of the um, the things that came out of the work. Well, it, I believe this um, network was formed in um, 2019 by a legislative uh, action. Um, a bill created the network, and one of the charges that they had was to uh, conduct a survey of the needs of the LGBT community in, in Connecticut. Um, and with them, they named about 20 groups that were part of the network. And so when we think about this survey, my understanding is that the, the work that was to be done to put the survey out, that was happening before the pandemic, and then the pandemic happened. And so talk through with us, uh, you know, how many respondents uh, the survey received, and were you happy with the results overall? Um, yes, I was happy. And, um, you know, we started before the survey of COVID, and um, we we're planning to do more in-person interviews. And... Um, um, but when COVID came along, we had changed um, the direction of the survey from an in-person survey um, and online to just an online survey. And that made it a lot harder because for a lot of people, they don't have access to the Internet. And I believe we had around four or five thousand people take the survey. And so that's a lot of people. But were you hoping for more, Diana? Well, we, we always hope for more. But um the uh, the survey was pretty good. We got a good representation of the population in Connecticut. Um, there was a little bit of weakness in the survey from the quiet corners of the state. But other than that, we had a very good turnout. They, um, no, I meant- one of the things that were lacking was those who didn't have access to computers. 
Right, because it was online. And, and before the pandemic, there was maybe more of an effort to think about how to get uh, this survey in front of people uh, beyond just uh, in the mail, uh, Diana? Well, not so much in the mail, but attending um, places where um, the community um, comes together. You know, having somebody maybe at um, some of the bars or the community networks, LGBT community centers, you know, having people there sit down and walk people through the survey and help them take it. But because of the COVID, we were um, forced to just rely on computers and word of mouth. Uh, the survey, I, I was surprised to read the first of its kind uh, in the state, looking at the LGBTQ plus community. And so when we think about how to advocate for the community, it's important to know what the needs are. And so what were some of the findings that struck you? Well, I, I think one of the major findings was that there was a lack of uh, health care. Um, people did not trust their doctors. Um, and a lot of people could not afford to go to doctors and also, the health care that we need was not really covered. Um, for example, um, for us who um, might have complications due to hormones or something, it was harder to get um, insurance coverage because they said it was related to um, our being trans or um, gay or lesbian. So there was things like that that created roadblocks for us. Um, for many low income, they didn't have um uh, health insurance, so they relied on um, Husky and stuff like that. And so there was a wide discrepancy between um, the socioeconomic levels. When you talk about um, health insurance coverage and the work that you're doing with the Connecticut Trans Advocacy Coalition, you were a big part of pushing for broader health insurance coverage. So can you talk about what has changed and uh, are some residents unaware of these changes, Diana? Well, um, what changed was um, the insurance commissioner issued a bulletin back uh, around 2012 that basically said any coverage that non-trans people or non-LGBT people got, um, for us, we also had to be covered. Um, for example, you know, having a hysterectomy for um, trans men, you know, it wasn't covered before, but now because of that bulletin, um, it is now covered. And so we fought a lot of times um, the CHRO had a ruling a couple of years ago that insurance must cover all of us. And um, it, it has become a, um, less of a problem, but we still have holdouts that we have to fight for. Um, and you mentioned the CHRO, that's the Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities. Yes, that, that's correct. They had a ruling back last year this time about health insurance have to be covered. I wanted to focus on some of the findings related to health care. 16% of respondents reported being refused health care services because of their LGBTQ identity. Can you talk about that, Diana? Well, you know, a lot of times you never know that's, that's why you're being refused. I've had good luck with um, doctors and health care experiences, um, but I know some that have not. Um, you really have to fight for it. A lot of times the doctor doesn't tell you why they don't want to treat you. Now, I had one doctor that never looked at me during my appointment when I came in for to see the specialist. Um, he sat there looking at his computer all day. I don't know if that was because I was trans or that's how he normally does it. So it's really hard to pin down 
why we're getting rejected. When somebody says they don't want a new patient, we really don't know why it is. So that's one of the things that we have as a trans people. We don't know why we're not being treated. And that can inform recommendations that come out of this survey and the idea of, of helping people find LGBTQ-friendly providers and staff who are trained on the needs of this community, Diana. Yes, um, there's, you know, the community um, centers um, down in Norwalk and New Haven and um, here in Hartford, for, um, Hartford Gay and Lesbian Health Collective is, they have referral lists, you know, so if you want a trans-friendly doctor, you know, you contact them and they usually have uh, uh, some doctors, but, you know, it shouldn't have to be that way. You shouldn't have to be a, have to go to a place where they have a list of friendly doctors. You know, it should be just routine. You just go to the doctor and that's, and not have any problems. You're hearing with us on Zoom, Diana Lombardi, Executive Director of the Connecticut Trans Advocacy Coalition, as we talk about the first of its kind survey of the LGBTQ plus community in our state, assessment of their needs from uh, housing to health care and other topics. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We talked about um, insurance coverage, Diana, but also in our state, there is a gender change on birth certificates that became a lot easier, um, no longer for requiring surgery. Explain why that is important. Well, you know, for many trans people, they um, cannot um, afford surgery. or But many of them do not want surgery. And so because the old forms required you to have surgery, which is a very uh, invasive um, procedure, you know, it's not simply you go in and, and have a hangnail replaced. You know, it's it's a four or five hour surgery. So it's very intensive. And for a lot of people, they can't have surgery like that. They might have a secondary care, you know, like diabetes or um, a heart condition or kidneys. And so they can't go to have surgery. And without being able to change your, your documentation um, by not having surgery, you know, you were, you were forcing all these people to live with the documents that did not say their true identity. So by allowing people to change with, um, your gender markers on your birth certificate, driver's license, passports, and stuff like that. It opened uh, a lot of uh, opportunities for trans people. Um, you know, it didn't have that much discrimination because you wouldn't go to a job and be listed male when you identify as female. So it, it gave a whole new um, area that we could get jobs without having to worry about our documentation. When we talk about transgender and non-binary residents, Diana, how many people are we talking about here in our state? Do we have any idea? Well, you know, that was one of the questions that kept on coming up when we were trying to pass the non-discrimination bill was how many people are actually trans in, in Connecticut? And um, we never knew. And this survey helped pin us down on the numbers. It's somewhere around 0.5 to 1% of the population is trans. But it's very hard to count because a lot of people don't want to be counted. You know, they fear discrimination. So it's just an estimate. And so there, this report that we mentioned, the survey, there are several recommendations. And so what do you want to see um, happen now that this has been reported out, Diana? You know, how communities, even uh, organizations within our state can respond uh, to the population? Well, I, I think we need better education, you know. 
if you look at the survey, there's a lot of LGBT people that don't know what the laws are today. You know, they don't know what a hate crime is. Um, what's the difference between protective speech and um, non-protective speech for hate crimes? Um, we have to educate people more. You know, I, I think we have most of the laws, but most people don't realize we do. And so we have to educate not only um, non-trans people, but also the trans community was available to them and, and how to fight for their rights. You are also part of the Governor's Council on Hate Crimes. Can you talk about that work, Diana? Well, the, the council just started, but we're, we're evaluating right now um, different laws in um, around the nation, what works and what doesn't work. We're trying to identify um, how we can um, improve the laws here to, to limit hate crimes. Um, maybe one of the answers is better education, an advertisement campaign about what a hate crime is. So we're looking for different ways to advise the governor on how to proceed to um, stop hate crimes. And before I let you go, Diana, you had mentioned earlier an experience that you had in a doctor office. And I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, despite the advances in recent years in our state, when we think about trans and non-binary health care, uh, specifically expansion insurance coverage or birth certificate changes, you know, some of the, your personal experiences about, you know, some of the advances in the state, but where more work needs to be done. Well, you know, um, I've been pretty lucky. I had a, a good set of healthcare providers. Um, I, I really haven't had a problem. That, that one was a specialist, and I had a, a medical problem that required me to go in and have some tests run to see what was causing the problem. But like I said, I don't know if this is how he always does and just enters the data on his laptop and not looks at his patient. So I don't really know if it was discrimination. And that's one of the problems. But I, I think the other thing is that we have to um, make people aware of what the law is. Now, uh, to me, that's, I think, is the biggest thing that we see is people do not realize we have laws out there for, to protect us. Well, one of the recommendations in the report, again, there are several, but the um, recruiting LGBTQ plus providers to work in Connecticut, especially in the healthcare and mental health sectors. And tell us about um, some of that work that needs to be done, Diana. Well, I, I think in med school, they need to um, also include more um, LGBT um, healthcare. You know, I volunteered for one of the um, uh, local training hospitals, uh, medical schools. And, you know, they have a, about a half a day training on LGBT people. Um, and most of that is just um, uh, talking by, by people like me who get up on the stage and, and talk about what they found and their health care problems and all that. I, I think they need to have more, have a whole semester of working with LGBT clients. Wow, half a day training that you mentioned. That's something. <laughs> yes. Well, Diana but it's Lombardi. actually more than some states. Some right. some schools don't have anything. Well, Diana Lombardi, thank you for coming on to talk about, again, this survey of the LGBTQ plus community. Diana's executive director of the Connecticut Trans Advocacy Coalition. A lot of uh, good data in this report. Are you hoping to do this on an annual basis or what are the plans for the future? Um, well, I don't know. It depends on the legislature. Um, my guess would be every like three or four years. Well, Diana, thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, we hear from the Middlesex Health Center for Gender Medicine and Wellness about how community health centers are better positioned than other larger hospital systems to provide full-spectrum care for trans and non-binary residents. And we hear about the urgent need to improve pediatric care for trans youth. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We just learned about the first statewide assessment of Connecticut's LGBTQ plus community. Among the feedback from more than the 3,000 residents was this, quote, that the U.S. healthcare system does not meet the needs of transgender and non-binary communities. Respondents in Connecticut's survey mentioned, quote, discrimination, malpractice, or mistreatment, and not being able to afford gender-related surgeries because of insurance. Now, Middlesex Health in Middletown launched a center focused solely on gender medicine that has since expanded into every medical department. Joining us now on Zoom is Katie Turney, Medical Director of Middlesex Health Center for Gender Medicine and Wellness. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And this note, Middlesex Health is an underwriter on Connecticut Public Radio. So Katie, tell us more about uh, this Center for Gender Medicine and Wellness and what it means and and how you got there to be a full spectrum care location for trans and non-binary residents. Well, it started, uh, you know, I joined Middlesex Health about eight years ago and um, and uh, doing trans care myself, um, really discovered a community hospital that was ready and willing and excited about um, providing true, competent, and confident transgender-related care. Um, so, you know, I, I try not to be a silo, and in, in I work in endocrinology, so I, I mostly do hormone therapy, but there's so many other facets to being a trans person and accessing healthcare that, you know, my philosophy really is that if you're a trans or non-binary person coming into a health system, you should be able to access that health system at any level, whether that's the emergency room or mental health or surgery or endocrinology or primary care, dermatology, um, pelvic physical therapy, voice therapy, whatever it is that you need, that you should be able to come in and not need 
um, something special. We should be already ready to take care of you the best way that um, we can. Um, you know, there's certainly, um, as uh, Diana mentioned, a dearth of programs that train for trans health and trans-related health. And we're early in the process, just historically figuring out what's right for people. Um, and, um, you know, I was very lucky to be working in a health system that what, had people in every department that raised their hand and said, I want to, or I am competent in this kind of care. And we want to, we want to move this forward. That's interesting. So before the center was created, if somebody identified as transgender or non-binary, uh, they might've been referred to a specialist versus thinking about, um, the primary care and that you might have uh, a healthcare provider or, or special provider or professional within a hospital system that understands uh, the transgender community uh, versus siloing them, as you mentioned, to a specialist. Right. I mean, certainly, you know, in hormone therapy, it helps to have somebody who's very comfortable with, with that algorithm and with that kind of treatment. But if you're, you know, um, if you're a trans person, I always tell my, my patients, you're still a person and that in that sense, you may need healthcare in all kinds of different areas. And so sometimes being trans or um, taking hormone therapy might affect that care, but sometimes it won't. And what you need is a, is a competent provider that can treat you, uh, treat you the right way, you know, in spite of or because of your trans identity or any kind of um, transition that you're going through. And ultimately, if you take a step back from that, really the goal is just to be able to take care of everyone and do it in a professional and um, kind manner because we want everyone to be able to access the health system and get the health care that they need, especially in this time when we're discovering sort of the holes in healthcare care and where we're not doing as well as we could. We want to shore those up as best we can. And it certainly takes time and institutional cultures are hard to change across the system, whether it's government or healthcare care or, or schools or whatever it is. Um, but we we, at least in my program at Middlesex, really want to make sure that we're adding each piece that we need that the community is looking for so that we can provide full full spectrum care. And how many patients does the center treat today? So best estimate, um, and it's hard sometimes to to count people, as Diana mentioned, you know, it's if people don't self-identify, we don't always know, um, and computers are what they are, but we, our best guess is somewhere between um, 1,200 and 1,500 trans people access our health system. And what a waiting list look like, especially when we think about uh, your center versus some of the bigger hospital systems when someone's looking for care and, and is looking for a provider that understands uh, where they're coming from. So it, again, depends on what kind of care you're looking for, you know, in, in surgical practices, patients turn over relatively quickly. So that's, you know, easier to get in. Um, in my um, endocrine practice, our wait lists are usually between three and six months, depending on where we're at in the year, just because there is such a demand for that kind of care. Um, one of the places I think in our state where we see the most difficult wait lists are with our adolescents, because there's, there's definitely a time uh, component to that for our adolescents who are going through or about to go through puberty. So some of the larger health systems do have um, backlogs, mostly because there is such a demand and we have so few programs. So recently, recently we did add an adolescent provider um, so that we can hopefully um, decrease those wait times um, for us and for also those other bigger systems. So our current wait time for adolescents is um, less than a month, um, though we'll see how the demand goes because it is a new program. 
Talk more about the need uh, to respond uh, to uh, children, especially those with gender dysphoria, and how uh, they're referred to a place like the Center for Gender Medicine and Wellness. So most of the time our referrals come from mental health providers because that's usually where families present or if they present in schools, that's sort of how they get connected with mental health and then they get sent to us. You know, once we're, you know, our um, British shoot is the uh, nurse practitioner who sees our adolescent patients. And, you know, I think her philosophy or our philosophy as a program is really that the more information that families have, the better. So deciding when and how to start either the puberty blockers or hormones is really a a decision that really needs to be made collaboratively between the providers, the mental health providers, the endocrine provider, and also the family. Um, And so, um, making sure that um, that kids are getting in at least to have those conversations. Sometimes that's enough just to give the lay of the land and see what will be happening in the next couple of years. Helps the family understand, helps the kids have a plan, makes the kids feel like they're being listened to and that their identity is important to um, their healthcare provider and their family. And then of course, getting them started on the appropriate medical treatment at the right time can be life-saving for so many of these adolescents. Mm-hmm. You're hearing Katie Tierney here on Where We Live, Medical Director of Middlesex Health Center for Gender, Medicine, and Wellness, as we talk about uh, the needs to improve health care for the LGBTQ plus community. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I wanted to bring into the conversation Tony Ferriolo, Director of the Youth and Families Program at Healthcare Advocates International. Tony's been a longtime advocate for transgender youth. Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. Nice to be here. And nice to, to hear from you again. You do, uh, as Katie mentioned, this is life-saving work. Let's talk about that. And when I when she mentioned uh, the need to help uh, young people within a certain amount of time, you know, why that's important? You know, it's, it's so important that when, you know, a, a kid says I'm trans or I'm non-binary, they're ready. They're, you know, it, it takes a lot for them just to get to the point to say this is who I am. Um, and if we can't provide them with the medical um, needs that they that they need, if they do need medical um, intervention, it really has a big impact on their emotional health. You know, we you know, and you know this that I, I sit in the hospitals and, and talk to kids right after they try to kill themselves, and a lot of times it's all about their bodies and dysphoria. And if we can't get them in to see providers that will help them with that, um, it's it's not going to be a good journey for them, right? Mm-hmm. Also, also, we have to think about just primary care, <laughs> you know, um, Healthcare Advocates International, you know, we, we provide uh, primary care for LGBTQ plus people 13 years and over, you know, it, it's uncommon to be able to just walk into a primary care um, facility and be treated with dignity and respect and um, people using your right name and pronoun. So it's a really cool organization um, to be able to really serve this population, but we can't be the only ones. Right. We've used some terms that maybe some of our listeners are are unfamiliar with. So I had mentioned gender dysphoria to Katie. Let's talk about that, Tony, and uh, and also that statistic about suicide, which is very troubling. Yeah. So, you know, gender dysphoria, body dysphoria um, is the anxiety um, and distress that comes along from the mismatch between our bodies and our minds. You know, and as a trans guy myself, I struggled with body dysphoria for many, many years, um, but was able to access what I needed because I had the money to do it. It wasn't covered by any insurance uh, back in the day. You know, I transitioned in 2005. 
and as Diana mentioned, there's a lot of things that have changed. You know, one thing that hasn't changed is to be able to just say to a patient, you know, hey, you need a specialist, go here, um, and they're going to take care of you. We have to make sure that that specialist, we used to say trans-friendly, but we need to say, are they trans-educated? It's two different things, right? Um, friendly is, I'll see you. Uh, you know, educated is, I'm going to treat you with the dignity and respect that you deserve. Remembering that we're all at our most vulnerable when we're sick, right? That's an important point. And so the work that you're doing for Healthcare Advocates International, educating providers about uh, the needs of the trans community. So talk more about that. So we're, we're working with families to help them advocate for themselves, right? So, you know, one of the biggest things that we've been doing is, and I, I couldn't believe how many families have reached out to the program saying, you know, hey, listen, you know, I brought my kids to his, their, their pediatrician. Their pediatrician uh, doesn't want to see them now because they're trans. They don't know, understand this. And my question in my mind has always been a sore throat is a sore throat, <laughs> right? We're not asking you to, um, the pediatricians to provide hormones or blockers. We're asking pediatricians to take care of a young human the way you would any other patient that walks through your door, you know? And one of the ways that we're trying to, um, help young people through this body dysphoria, as, as we were talking about before, is providing binders, uh, chest binders, which are garments that they wear to, to flatten their chest. You know, and we've been sending free binders out since January all over the world, and we stripped about 100 out. This is life-saving, right? So we it, it helps us help these children from, okay, I, I can't be in my body to, okay, I feel comfortable now enough. If they need medical intervention, like top surgery, then they're able to stay alive long enough um, and maybe a little less um, emotional distress until they can access that. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that we can do um, at healthcare advocates, of course, but, but everywhere to really support these children. You know, Lucy, I've said this for years. If we can give these children hope for a better life, they won't want to take their life. You know, almost almost half of uh, trans and non-binary kids that are surveyed attempt suicide, attempt suicide, Lucy, not think about suicide, but attempt it. And, and I know that is fact because I can't tell you how heartbreaking it is to sit in front of a 12 year old. I just did this a couple of months ago who tried to kill himself three times since January. And it was all because of his body dysphoria. So what did healthcare advocates family youth program do? We said, OK, do you need a binder? And he was like, what? I was like, yeah, do you need a binder? I can have a binder. We gave him a couple of binders. It just shifted him so much. And he got out of the hospital and he contacted us a couple of weeks ago. And he said, I'm planning my future. <laughs> I'm sorry, I get choked up. We saved him because we gave him what he needed until he can access the medical care that he deserves. You're hearing Tony Ferriolo again here on Where We Live, Director of the Youth and Families Program at Healthcare Advocates International. Uh, Katie Tierney at Middlesex Health, can you respond to what Tony shared, and, and even on the on the topic of providing free binders and why that's so pivotal? I, you know, I think what it comes down to is when you recognize the the identity of someone and you take away your own personal you know, expectations for other people and allow people to flourish as the people they are. And by doing something as simple as I see you and I'm going to support you in this journey with something as simple as a binder or a pronoun or, or a correct name, I think you can take away the perception that they are being marginalized or that they're being um, disrespected. And 
I don't think we give enough um, credence to something like this because, you know, at the end of the day, all of us want to be seen for who we are and who we truly want to be. And that idea of giving somebody their future or showing them a way to get there is so critical. Being an adolescent is so hard <laughs> these days. I feel like I don't know how they do it sometimes. And being a trans adolescent, not knowing what that future looks like and not knowing that you have that kind of support or not having that kind of education from your trusted people, right? Your, your healthcare providers, your teachers, then of course you can't see the future. And of course it doesn't feel like there is one. Um, so people like, um, like Tony and, and hopefully our program, we're giving people that idea that they can be who they are and explore that and still be valid. Again, you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at where we live. Madison's calling in. Madison, what's your question? Oh, hi, this is Madison. Hi, Katie. This is Madison from Hartford. Um, I've been a patient for eight years and I get just wonderful service down in Middlesex and with Katie Turney. Um, I, my question is that uh, when do you feel or uh, that or do you have any idea when Middlesex will be able to offer transgender women vaginoplasty surgery? As I said before, uh, we're always trying to add those little pieces. So we are working as hard as we can to make sure that we can provide everything that everyone would need. Mm -hmm. Again, you can join us if you have a question about um, how to improve or help uh, improve uh, health care for the LGBTQ plus community, the number 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Tony, I wanted to get back to you and, and some of the conversations that you're having with healthcare providers, the trainings that you do with Healthcare Advocates International, but also just some of the conversations that you're having with families. You shared uh, that anecdote about the one young person and, and again, what Katie shared with us, building on um, seeing um, these uh, these children's you know, children as human, right, as people Absolutely. that need help, and and how to get that kind of conversation started, as well as the work you're doing to help families. Yeah, it start uh, Friday. I we did a uh, a workshop Friday night called "From Fair to Acceptance," and it was for uh, parents and caregivers of trans and non-binary um, young humans. Uh, we had about 60 people participate. They were from all over the country. It was supposed to last an hour. It lasted two and a half hours because there were so many people in such distress. And if we can give parents the tools to to honor their children and, and meet them where they are, right? And a lot of people are like, you know, how do you save these kids, Tony? It's not me. It's not me. I And like Katie, and, and I like what Katie said, you know, what, what we do is we listen to what they need. We believe them, Right. <laughs> And we provide it to them. And if, if healthcare advocates can't provide it to them, then we send them someplace that can. But parents sometimes get so wrapped in the fear of, oh my God, what what is my kid's life going to be like? You know, because they hear all the. Listen, we're in we're in the middle of Trans Awareness Week. Saturday is Trans Day of Remembrance, and we know what that day is about, right? So the parents see that, and they're very concerned about their kids. If we can get the parents on board to protect their kids and be their advocate at medical providers and make sure that medical providers are treating their, their kids with dignity and respect. I mean, I get, we get calls saying, should I tell my dentist that my kid is trans? And I'm like, well, why? I mean, I, so I, my, my suggestion is no, you do not need to tell your dentist that your kid is trans because we know that once we come out as trans at a health provider, no matter who they are, what specialty it is, 
the likelihood of us being treated different is very, very high. So that's why we need to, we, we have, we have a vetted list also at healthcare advocates that we will not send you anywhere where we know they're not culturally competent, even blood draws, right? We have to be able to send people to places where if our, if our name and pronoun doesn't match our legal name and pronoun, that they're going to have a space where they know that they can still honor us and use the right name and pronoun. So that list that you mentioned, you know, what does it look like uh, from the it's work not that, that you're many. doing? <laughs> it's not that <laughs> It's not that long. It's not that long. Listen, like Katie, Tier- Katie Tierney's program is a program that we refer people to. Um, but for, for primary care, there really isn't a lot of places where we know of. I mean, there might be some people that are going to primary. I know I go to a primary care specialist in um, in Hamden, uh, Vanessa Pomerico. She's awesome. Um, she's been doing trans health forever but not everybody lives near Hamden, Connecticut, right? We need to have uh, providers all over the state. You should be able to just call up a provider and walk in and be cared for like everybody else. Uh, Katie Tierney, uh, what happens when we hear stories uh, when families are struggling and uh, young people who um, who come out and, and tell their family that they're trans or non-binary and you know they're on their family's insurance plan? but not all, all, some families are struggling. And so what happens if that child is turned out of the home and doesn't have anywhere to go? You know, how, do, how, does, how do they get connected to that care? You know, that, that care then becomes all-encompassing, right? We need to make sure that they are you know, getting housing. We need to make sure that they're getting food. We need to make sure that they're being taken care of a human being long before they're getting trans-affirmative hormone therapy. But, you know, sometimes the the... The place that I see the most, you know, the joy that I get really is when we're able to help people take care of this one part so that they can be become their full selves. So that means that they are more confident. They can um, they can find work and not be afraid that they're going to be targeted or they're able to come out to their families and really help their families be educated so that they can remain part of that family structure. And when they can't remain part of that family structure, then we... Um, you know, that then we figure out how to, to make that better. But, you know, the one of the things in the LGBTQ community has always been chosen family. And so many in our community are taking care of each other um, and making sure that we have those resources from Diana to Tony to, to form more formalized programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tony, you mentioned the high rate of suicide attempts among transgender youth. I've seen that same statistic from the American Academy of Pediatrics. And so for people that are listening who may be struggling, you know, what resources uh, would you like to refer them to? Yeah, I mean, and reach out to everyone that's on this show. I mean, I know that um, you can reach out to, to me, go to your community. Like Katie said, it's so important that we create a family. Look around you. You know, there are people who will who will be kind to you. Don't sit don't sit in silence and don't sit in isolation. Um, we will the healthcare advocates, youth and family program will will refer you out to to whoever. You know, part of the program is, you know, I'm a certified life coach and healthcare advocates is allowing me to coach a young uh, trans people, non-binary LGBTQ youth um, for, for free. So if they, they have financial reasons why they can't pay for therapy or for, for a life coach, they can come to me and I will coach them for free. It's, it's a way to get them through some really hard times and to start saying to them, hey, have you heard of, you know, uh, PFLAG? Have you heard of, you know, um, this, this group here? New Haven Pride Center has a, has a youth group. Uh, uh, we have a youth group. So to try to get these children into um, 
a group where they can kind of talk about their struggles with people that are going through the same thing is super, super important. And it has saved lives for years. Mm -hmm. Support groups are really, really important. And Katie, you know, oftentimes on the show, we refer people to 211. But when I was reading this LGBTQ, LGBTQ plus survey, the statewide assessment, some respondents said when they call 211, it hasn't been helpful. So is there a, a, a number or hotline that people should be referred to that, that as Tony mentioned, are LG, LGBTQ educated? So, you know, certainly it depends on the acuity of the problem, right? If this, if somebody is actively suicidal, suicidal, then we need a trans um, suicide hotline, um, which they can call, of course, um, or their mental health provider. Um, for less acute issues, I think, you know, getting connected with, you know, we have a, a navigator who's a social worker here at Middlesex who can help connect people to the um, services that they need. Um, Places like healthcare, uh, I'm sorry, the Hartford Gay and Lesbian Health Collective certainly has resources as well. Um, Tony's program, um, really just reaching out to any kind of um, program in the state um, that does trans care um, will be able to help navigate that for the patient. And we will let our listeners know they can go to our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live, where we have links uh, to all of our guests and their organizations today uh, on the show. Uh, you've been hearing Katie Tierney, again, Medical Director of Middlesex Health Center for Gender Medicine and Wellness. Also with us, Tony Ferriolo, Director of the Youth and Families Program at Healthcare Advocates International. We're going to continue talking after the break. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's Transgender Awareness Week, and its national survey, LGBTQ organization GLAAD, says reports of discrimination have increased this year. And in 2021, state and federal lawmakers introduced more than 100 bills to restrict the rights of trans women, people, and youth. Today, we're focused on health care for transgender and non-binary Connecticut residents, including young people. Joining us now on Zoom is Dr. Christy Olazeski, director and co-founder of the Yale Pediatric Gender Program that's within Yale New Haven Children's Hospital. She's also associate professor of psychiatry at Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Olazeski, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for having me today. We've been talking about some issues uh, in providing focused care, including longer waits. And so tell us about the Yale Pediatric Gender Program and how you're working to tackle this. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I will say that, um, as mentioned in previous, um, you know, talks with uh, Diana and Tony and Katie, um, you know, that we are really trying to work together with other community providers to be able to provide really um effective healthcare for youth. Um, and we're finding similar things, you know, that folks are not educated um, on, you know, trans healthcare. Um, I could tell you that when we first started our program in 2015, um, I had been speaking with Tony and he said that there was going to be uh, an, a number of folks who would be needing care. And, and I said, well, we're in a, such a small state, you know, really how, how high could the need be? And um, you know, quickly we grew to have a two-year wait list. And so we've been continuously adding on 
our clinics um, to be, uh, you know, serving folks all throughout the state. You know, currently we are seeing um, individuals across all eight counties in Connecticut and five outside states. We've served over 300 um, youth so far, and I could tell you that our wait list is pretty lengthy. It's about 15 months right now. Um, and so we are, um, you know, trying to educate folks in being able to provide um, health care in other settings as well and collaborating with other folks uh, in different settings to be able to make sure that youth are being able to get the care that they need. As Tony and Katie had said previously, you know, this is life-saving treatment and it can be really upsetting for folks to be on a wait list for that long. When you talk about health care, talk about mental health care, especially when we're talking about children. Yeah, so I think that, you know, our when we started our program, it was really important to us to provide a holistic approach. So incorporated in our clinic is, you know, an endocrinologist, a mental health professional. Um, there's a legal advocate um, for any legal issues that may come up, as well as now we've embedded a chaplain in our in our program, um, as well as other outside, um, you know, ancillary providers. And, you know, the reason why we do this is because we know, as you know, Tony and Kate had mentioned, that there's such a high uh, percentage of, of uh, folks who are experiencing other co-occurring issues, you know, depression, anxiety, um, et cetera. And so I could tell you with our population, um, you know, we've had folks, um, as Tony had mentioned, you know, the suicide attempt rate is really high. We've had about 26% of our folks have a previous suicide attempt. Um, and, uh, about 60% have had previous or current suicidal ideation. So this is really important for us to be able to not only meet the patient's needs when they come into clinic, you know, so to assess for these things, to be able to give them resources, to connect them to groups. Um, as Tony mentioned, you know, finding groups and community connectedness is really important. So we've, you know, increased our groups. Uh, we have a parent group and a youth group that meet um, twice a month. And we're trying to, you know, have good connections with other community providers to provide mental health care. Um, but as, as has been previous mentioned, you know, folks are not always provided or are not as educated in trans health care um, as we'd like. And so that's something that's really important um, to be able to find. Mm -hmm. uh, that sounds like a, a crisis point, right? If you know that people are struggling and there's uh, high rates of suicide attempts to have uh, more providers that understand uh, the needs of this population, uh, Dr. Olazeski. Yeah, it is something that is really important. Um, and I think that's something that we've been trying to do at Yale. I think as Diana had mentioned previously, you know, there's a half day training. Oftentimes, you know, I think national average is like five hours of training in medical school for all LGBTQ healthcare, which is um, abysmal. <laughs> and so we have been trying to reach out and to educate folks on providing, um, you know, trans competent uh, mental health care and health care um, in different settings because we know that the need is so high. Um, and if you're looking at, you know, national surveys that have come out recently, uh, you know, I think that the, the Trevor Project, um, which is also a great resource uh, for folks who are struggling, uh, but the Trevor Project had a survey uh, last year that looked at mental health needs of youth and found that half of LGBTQ youth wanted to have mental health care, but could not access it. And so that's a real problem um, and something that we really need to focus on to be able to increase the number of providers that are out there that are versed in um, LGBTQ folks um, to be able to provide really effective health care for them.
We just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, I just wanted to uh, highlight again what Tony had mentioned through Healthcare Advocates International, I believe partnering with the Pediatric Gender Program at Yale uh, to uh, for, for its first annual binder drive to support trans youth. Dr. Olazeski, uh, tell, tell us why this is important when you think about uh, the, the patients you're seeing. Yeah, it's it's very important. Um, as I think Tony had mentioned, you know, when folks are able to get these uh, interventions, you know, it's non-medical interventions to be able to have a, uh, a body that looks more congruent with their identity, it can be very helpful for them uh, to be able to feel more comfortable going out in public or, um, you know, just going through the day, you know, being able to get out of bed. And so it's really important to be able to provide this resource for free. Um, and one of the things that we oftentimes talk about with families is, you know, um, I think that, you know, as they may be um, waiting for, for any sort of medical interventions or thinking about, um, you know, maybe considering medical interventions if parents are not fully sort of accepting is that there are these free interventions. Like I said, you know, it, now having binders for free is great, um, but, you know, also using somebody's name and pronouns and, and the data is out there actually for name and pronouns that if we're using these interventions that there's less likelihood of a youth engaging in suicidal behavior. So um, I think that we probably would see the same sort of data if we looked at the use of binders for youth as well. And when you mentioned medical intervention, so binders can be used by gender nonconforming or trans youth to curb dysphoria without undergoing surgery, Dr. Olazeski? That's correct, yes. So the, the binder is a garment that's uh, put on, placed on the top half of the body, and that compresses the chest area to look flat, like a masculine, more masculine chest mm -hmm. or well, non binary chest, I should say. We should we appreciate your time coming on to talk about the the gender program again, Dr. Christy Olazeski, director and co-founder of the Yale Pediatric Gender Program within Yale New Haven Children's Hospital. Katie Tierney was also here, medical director of Middlesex Health Center for Gender Medicine and Wellness, and Tony Ferrioli. Ferriola, again, Director of the Youth and Families Program at Healthcare Advocates International. Thanks for your time today. And again, there are links on our website to learn more about these organizations at ctpublic.org slash where we live. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Katie Tularski was on the phones today. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.